You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. I actually realized this morning that in a sense I've written the wrong paper. Um, going, uh, having listened to all the, the excellent papers at this conference, I thought perhaps a better paper would have been, the paper I should have done, would have been a paper called Archiving Joyce. So it's not just about you know, collecting an archive of Joyce, but Joyce as an archivist. Um, H.G. Wells, in his uh, review of a portrait of the artist when it came out, said that Mr. Joyce is a cloacal obsession. This line is get quoted over and over again. But the full context of Wells' quote is not that Wells is saying that Joyce has a dirty mind, which is not untrue, but the full context has something different. Mr. Joyce has a cloacal obsession. He would bring back into the general picture of life aspects which modern drainage and modern decorum have taken out of ordinary intercourse and conversation. That is, Joyce is an archivist. He records that which would otherwise be lost. And it means something I very much realized while annotating Ulysses, that there's so many small details collected in Joyce that would otherwise get forgotten. All these little aspects quotidian life in and around Dublin circa 1904 that would otherwise be forgotten had it not been for Joyce. Um, so that would have been a great paper if I'd done that. Um, but instead, my actual paper, the one that you're about to endure, is um, concerns certain things that might otherwise have get, gotten lost um, as Joyce is writing his works. Um, Joyce's own archive for his works in progress as they are progressing, things that get lost, that, edit, that then editors try and fail to remember and reconstitute. And by editors here, I'm including Joyce himself, since Joyce was the first editor of his own works. Reflecting on the various issues he confronted as Joyce's publisher for the serializations of Finnegan's Wake, Eugene Jolis remarked that the word Joyce had become a verb of obligation on the part of the typos. Context and quotation marks suggest that Jolis is using the word typos as a slang abbreviation of typographer, that the name Joyce was um, a curse word used by the uh, typesetters. Um, but of course, the word is also an abbreviation of typographical error. And it's this kind of uh, happy conflation of the two that I want to sort of um, use as my starting point, that Joyce confounds, confuses, and ambiguates typos, both typesetter and type error alike. If typos could speak, they too would curse Joyce. And indeed, the story of Ulysses is enmeshed with issues of error and its discontents. That is, the typos made by typos and Joyce alike. Now, the serializations of Ulysses in the Little Review were so marred by typos that Joyce, and, and typos in both senses, by the typesetters and by uh, typographical errors, that Joyce resorted to a few verbs of objurgation himself. In February 1920, he wrote to Harriet Weaver that the Little Review text should not be used as the basis for any subsequent book publication since, quote, many passages are omitted and hopelessly mixed. Likewise, despite their yeoman efforts in typesetting the first edition of Ulysses, Maurice Darantière and his team of typesetters also perpetuated errors that likewise infuriated Joyce. In November 1921, Joyce famously groused to Weaver that, I am extremely irritated by all these printers' errors. Are these to be perpetuated in future editions? I hope not. And one especial irritant here was someone named Maurice Hirschwald, one of uh, Darantière's typesetters, who unfortunately knew some English and decided to correct 
um, Joyce's errors. Um, on the 11th of August, 1921, Hirschwald wrote to uh, Soviet Beach to announce that he would try to correct what he thought were errors, such as Joyce's unorthodox compound words. Many of Hirschwald's emendations wound up having to be undone on the proof pages. However, some persisted into the first edition and were only dealt with in uh, subsequent rounds of corrections. And so, along with the composition and revision of Ulysses, Joyce found himself correcting Ulysses as he went along. In some cases, his corrections simply involved undoing what his typesetters had wrought. For example, confronting visions and scenes of his past in Circe, Bloom sees a dummy of himself rolled in a mummy, rolls rotinatingly from the lion's head's cliff into the purple waiting waters. Joyce clearly writes rotinatingly on this manuscript here. The typesetter, the typist incorrectly types this as um, rake-hattingly, um, which Joyce then um, corrects back to rotiatingly on top. But then on the placard of the first Gallic-proof stage, this neologism was um, um, the, 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 types, the, the typesetter just didn't believe that and changes it to the more sensible or seemingly sensible rotatingly, which Joyce again corrects back to rotiatingly. Um, so, and so because of all these, um, these two authorial interventions at two uh, distinct stages, the word manages to appear unmolested in the first edition. <laughs> now, from the immediate context, the general sense of this word seems to be rotatingly, that is, turning. But we can see from Joyce's revisions that somehow the element rote, R-O-T-E, is essential for its purposes. Now, the word rote is an archaic version of rotate, um, and um, 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 but the OED indicates some other meanings that are um, still quite relevant here, um, it, such as a wheel used as an instrument of torture or punishment. Um, but also, the rote means the roaring of the sea or surf. And this sense is appropriate precisely because Bloom's dummy here is falling into the purple wading waters. And so the neologism rotiatingly thus expresses the tortuous transformations undergone by the body as it is falling into the sea. And this back and forth flickering between rotiatingly and rotatingly on the typescript and proof pages demonstrates that um, demonstrates Joyce's editorial duties whilst writing Ulysses. A mistake gets made, perhaps even with the best of intentions, and Joyce corrects it, restoring the word to its initial unconventional form. And indeed, the fact that Joyce had to correct this word multiple times confirms that this neologism is not a mistake, but is instead a deliberate aesthetic choice. Joyce's editorial work thus highlights, even vouchsafes for future generations of editors, an aspect of his artistic labor. Unfortunately, the pre-publication error was recrudescent on subsequent printings. The erroneous form, um, rotatingly, um, came back in the 1932 Odyssey Press edition and remained in all editions of, of Ulysses up through Gobblers. And so Joyce may have been the first editor of Ulysses, but of course he was not and will not be the last. Now, on occasion, there is a touch of the artist about Joyce, the editor, such as when he actively draws inspiration from editorial departures. As Daniel Ferrer and Jean-Michel Rabaté point out, the Little Review serialization of the Aeolus chapter starts off with an especially gnarly howler. 
um, gross fooded Draven uh, rolled barrels of thudding out of Prince's stores and bumped them up on the brewery, brewery float. The first sentence gets repeated, um, right, uh, 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 appears twice. Um, and indeed, um, uh, the word dull thudding is, while correct in the second iteration of the sentence, appears as dull hudding in the first. So it's not even a perfect repetition. Um, and rather than discard the repeated sentence, Joyce takes advantage of the occasion to change the order of the words and to introduce a chiastic structure. And so in the final text, this passage now reads, gross booted Draymond roll barrels dull thudding out of Prince's stores and bump them up on the brewery float. On the brewery float, bump dull thudding, dull thudding barrels rolled by gross booted Draymond out of Prince's store. So Joyce's response to this error is to use it as a compositional portal of discovery. In this case, writing is editing by other means. But of course, like all editors, Joyce is not entirely infallible. For example, on the Rosenbach draft of the Wandering Rocks chapter, uh, Joyce writes, in Clohissey's window, a faded print of Heenan boxing sayers held his eyes. Now, as is usual when referring to commercial establishments, Joyce relied on the 1904 edition of Tom's Directory to confirm the details of, of various establishments, in this case, Malachi Clohissey's bookstore at 10 Bedford Row. But as a regular user of Tom's, Joyce was especially familiar with its unreliability and its propensity to accuracy. Joyce knew that Tom's makes a lot of mistakes. And so on the first galley proof, Joyce amends the spelling of this to Clohissey with two S's, the more usual form of the name. Joyce quite reasonably assumed that in this instance, Tom's was in error. However, the 1901 census of Ireland corroborates the spelling in Tom's, and so Joyce's authorial correction is in this instance not unlike the well-meaning but nonetheless misguided erroneous corrections uh, per perpetrated by various generations of beleaguered typists and typesetters. An editor can always facilitate, perpetuate, and create error. Error after error, time after time, typo after typo, clovisy after clovisy. <laughs> so a problem then for the contemporary editor comes when Joyce um, catches a mistake, but instead of restoring the lost reading, he uses the mistake and it, as an occasion for further revision. I've given reasonably straightforward examples here, so I'm going to start to give some um, murkier instances. For example, in Circe, where Bloom, on, as if on trial by hallucination, he, is, he provides his credentials by establishing his genealogy. This is who I am. This is my family. Um, and so on the Rosenbach uh, version of this passage, he says, Dr. Bloom, Leopold, dental surgeon. You have heard of Love Pasha? Upton Williams owns half, owns half Austria, Egypt, cousin. This passage is the um, result of no small part of misidentification, both deliberate and accidental, between Joyce, his typist, and eventually uh, Gobbler comes into the picture as well. Now here, in this version of it, Bloom presents himself as um, Leopold Bloom, but he's trying to say he's really someone else. Marcus Bloom, a dentist with offices at two clerestories, is a, a real individual. Um, and indeed, he's remarked upon earlier in Ulysses when Cashel Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmaurice, Tisdall, Farrell passed by this Bloom's offices, and in Cyclops, Jack Power asks if Bloom and this dentist are cousins. Um, they're um, not related either in Ulysses or real life, because you know, Leopold Bloom doesn't actually exist. 
no relation exists, and yet in Circe, Bloom is here claiming that he and the dentist are one and the same. And then furthermore, this new conflated character is also a cousin of Blum Pasha. This is Sir Julius Blum, a Hungarian-born Jewish financier who lived in Egypt where he was appointed director of the Austro-Egyptian Bank um, from 1869. He became finance minister. And then he moved um, later to Vienna to uh, direct the Australian Kreditstadt. And he was widely referred to as Blom Pasha. So that's who is his um, wealthy cousin. Now, Joyce clearly writes on this draft, Blum Pasha, B-L-U-M. But unfortunately, the typist changes this to Bloom Pasha, either inadvertently and out of habitually typing Bloom, or actively and out of an assumption that Joyce had made a mistake in writing down the name of his protagonist in this one instance. And so the spelling, Bloom Pasha, remains, um, 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 appears in all versions of, 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 of this um, um, passage, um, in all iterations, up, to, up until Gobblers. Now, on a page group, Joyce amends the name, but not to correct the transformation inflicted by the typist. Instead of reverting to the more Germanic-sounding Blum, Joyce added to the Bloom a Germanic particle, thereby, naming, thereby making the name von Blum Pasha. Although the name has twice been transformed, the word Pasha is still sufficient to retain the connection, the suggestion, the reference to Sir Julius Blum. Now, and on the same proof, Joyce also further enhances the Germanic elaboration by adding the exclamation, Donnerwetter, I'll be damned, or more literally, thunder weather. And so, in all editions up to Gobblers, this passage reads, uh, Dr. Bloom, Leopold, dental surgeon, you have heard of von Blum Pasha, up to millions, Donnerwetter, owns half Austria, Egypt cousins. Now, for um, his, uh, uh, um, for, uh, for, for his edition, Gobbler reverted to the spelling Blum, B-L-U-M, as found in the Rosenbach, but he keeps the particle, thereby creating a fourth conflated or synthetic version of this passage, a synthetic version of this name, one does not and one which does not appear in any previous single manuscript version. Now, Joyce was a haphazard editor. Examples like the restoration of Rhodey Adingley are the exception, and far more frequently, and this is um, um, how Gobbler explains it, Joyce, quote, failed to notice what the revision was not, that the revision was not what he thought it was. And so in amending, in making this emendation to Bloom Pasha, Joyce um, might well have failed to realize that the name that he was looking for was the result of an error. And so, uh, because Gobbler refuses in general to allow for what he calls passive authorization, he reverts back to Blum. But in this instance, the rejection of passive authorization is possibly in tension with another aspect of Gobbler's, Gobbler's um, editorial procedure, the rule of the invariant context. Because Joyce's text underwent revision and transformation across many different levels over a non-negligible period of time, there are many instances where transmissional departure cannot be undone without undoing revisions that were made after that departure had been introduced. 
Gobbler explains that in instances where such a conflict in fact arises, the later revision takes, place, takes precedence over the earlier one. That is, a transmissional departure is unwound only in cases where its context is sufficiently unchanged, that is, invariant. The problem then with von Blum Pasha is that on the one hand, uh, the fact that Joyce did not correct uh, the typist Blum is not considered uh, a case of approval of authorization. But on the other hand, it is not unequivocal that the context really is unchanged since the introduction of the Germanic particle along with the exclamation Donnerwetter could arguably sufficiently compensate for the loss of the Germanic spelling blum so as to preempt its restoration into the text. So it doesn't necessarily um, undo something that was lost. And indeed, this also creates a mismatch in terms of other, the other reference in the text to Blum Pasha, um, since um, he appears um, a lot in, in a list of the eminent financiers in Ithaca as Blum Pasha. And so the discrepancy <coughs> in uh, Blum's name and his two appearances is the result of the uneven and awkward process of composition. Gobbler's emendation restores the harmony between episodes, but also introduces its own disharmony in its conflating of multiple different drafts in Circe. My point here, that, uh, without sort of uh, wading too much into the sort of textual minutia, is that Gobbler's emendation is not wrong, but it's not necessarily right either. It renders the traces of fissile text differently from what is from what has come before. Um, that is, it's a different choice, um, and it's one that is made possible by surveying the manuscript dossier through what Gobbler calls the continuous manuscript text. It brings the archive visibly into the text. Restoring lost passages, mending errors, always has the potential to destabilize the text, but furthermore, such, an act, such acts of editorial destabilization reveal that the text was always a little bit wobbly to begin with. So Gobbler's um, emendation of von Blum Pasha exemplifies and is a result of the palimpsestic quality of the continuous manuscript text. Gobbler calls it a single imaginary document, a multi-layered and highly complex text that carries the dynamics of an extended textual development within it. So it's a synthetic construction and a differential amalgamation of variants across multiple draft layers. And so that is... Gobbler's editorial work carries within and sublates Joyce's preceding editorial labors, among other things. If the continuous palimpsest, if the continuous manuscript text is a palimpsest, that's because Ulysses was always already that at each and every one of its um, um, uh, draft stages, pre and post publication. As Michael Groden writes, Joyce wanted Ulysses to be a record of all the stages he passed through and not merely a product of the last one. So the text is always a kind of archive of itself. There's another example. I'd like to look at a brief passage in Cyclops across its layers of draft evolution from Rosenbach, the fair copy, that is the fair copy, um, upwards. Now, the passage undergoes minimal change, um, both authorial and non-authorial, but the quality of these changes and their respective aftermaths is illustrative of these problems of sort of the dynamic of textual evolution through variation, um, both deliberate and accidental. And so, on the Rosenbach, um, 
um, the uh, 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 text reads, the figure seated on a large boulder was that of a broad-shouldered, deep-chested, strong-limbed, frank-eyed, red-haired, freely-freckled, shaggy-bearded, wide-mouthed, large-nosed, long-headed, deep-voiced, bare-kneed, brawny-handed, hairy-like, ruddy-faced, sinewy-armed. Here. Now Joyce, as you can see here, adds freely-freckled in the margin, but this um, addition, simple as it is, creates two problems. The first is that unlike all the other adjectives in this passage, it's clearly written as two distinct words, an incongruous form that it retains through its uh, throughout its textual transmission up to the first edition. And this is an instance of a split compound word that you can't blame Hirschfeld for. This is clearly Joyce's fault. The second is that Joyce neglects to add an additional comma to, um, 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 to accommodate this um, inserted um, item. And this is an oversight common to many writers habituated to marginal insertions. And so with this insertion, Joyce is acting like a writer and not an editor, since he pays no attention to the niceties of consistency. The typist, on the other hand, did edit this passage, albeit conservatively. The typescript is missing, but its contents are inferable from the Little Review serialization and the first placard. The missing comma that is needed by the insertion of freely freckled does get supplied. That's a reasonably um, uncontroversial um, uh, change to make. Um, as well as the comma that Joyce had missed after the word long-headed. On the Rosenbach, that word fell at the very end of the line, which is presumably why that comma went on. Um, there's going to be a lot of talk about commas for the next few minutes, so just be um, um, the, type, uh, the typist also compensated for another uh, potential problem caused by the lineation of the Rosenbach. On the Rosenbach, broad-shouldered was split into two because it fell at the end of a line, but the typist correctly entered it as a compound word. But the typist did not amend freely freckle and keeps that in its two-word form. Now, since the typescript is missing, it's entirely possible that um, those modifications weren't done by the typist, but Joyce caught them himself on it in an act of uh, being an editor of, of, of that document. It's, uh, it's, um, I, I don't, the, the credit could, could be Joyce's here after all. But the typist was also not perfect since the sinewy-armed hero unfortunately becomes a sinewy-armed hero, whatever the hell that is. And that's an error that lives on for several generations of textual transmission. Now, on the second uh, gallery proof, Joyce adds the phrase, at the foot of a round tower. Other than that, the text remains unchanged from the missing typescript level on up until the page proofs. The uh, here we have the text on the, the first round of page groups. Um, there are only a few phrases added throughout the whole, this whole pulling and none in the passage above. The only authorial intrusion on this passage involves the letter H in that, which is badly set. And so Joyce struck through the problematic letter and wrote a large H in the margin. And he makes, um, th for this pulling, he makes a numerous um, um, such changes like that. Um, so on this proof stage, Joyce is primarily acting like an editor. He's getting the text ready for publication, making sure it looks as clean as possible. However, he's also an imperfect editor, since he, he lets two errors live on through this passage, the two-word freely freckled and that damn sinewy armed. 
On this particular uh, proof stage, the comma after freckled is fainter than its counterparts. You can see here, this is something in the James Joyce archive uh, reproductions that were published in the 70s, but they're very high contrast. You can't quite see it clearly. You actually have to look at, the, either have to have a better quality scan or look at the original to see the, the, uh, uh, how badly that comma gets set. And then on the next fruit page, it's gone. Um, and so, on, 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 on the, the, the next proof page, Joyce crosses out all the other commas, perhaps prompted by the now inadvertently missing comma after freckled, or perhaps prompted by the surfeit of letter space between freely and freckled. This is an interesting case of sort of what we're always talking about, the extended mind. Here, the typesetting problem, it gives Joyce a prompt as to how to revise the sense, to give it a different sort of sense of style. Um, Joyce also uh, finally corrects uh, the sinewy armed hero back into sinewy armed. However, he still lets the freely freckled um, two-word form persist, and now it's uh, persisting within an unpunctuated string of compound words. Now, um, in terms of following these instructions, the typesetter um, removes the commas with an impressive 93% accuracy which is to say he, misses, he, he lets one comma live. The comma after ruddy-faced remained on the third pulling, and that was the last pulling for this tranche of text until the first edition. And so, the first edition of this passage, and the first edition of this passage has two incongruities. Each of them has a separate genealogy, the two-word freely freckled and the comma after ruddy-faced. Now, the draft um, history of this passage is it's quite straightforward, but I've been going through it in um, torturous detail precisely in order to show the intertwining of Joyce's authorial and editorial importance. The removal of the commas, perhaps prompted by problematic typesetting, is an editorial choice that yields an aesthetic effect. Furthermore, the presence of the two incongruities in the first edition is a trace of the multi-layered composition across different draft stages of this one sentence. If the passage remains uneven in the first edition, it's because its composition had itself been uneven. The resulting text is the product of a series of decisions, some of which were responses to previous accidents, and some of which wind up being imperfectly implemented, carrying a flawed text forward, awaiting some future editor. The patchy history of the sentence continues after the first edition was published. In the autumn of 1922, Joyce, Weaver, and John Watker worked on preparing an errata list for the second printing of Ulysses in November uh, that year. While preparing um, his part of the list of errata, Joyce did notice the two remaining incongruities in this passage, but because of the circumstances in which he was working, these particular corrections didn't wind up getting uh, included in the errata list. In November 22, Joyce wrote to Weaver from Nice and sent her a list of corrections for pages 1 to pages 290. He asked her to check them before forwarding them on. However, the list that he sent was incomplete. Um, the notebook he sent her only went as far as page 258. Um, but um, uh, at least some of the additional corrections Joyce made have survived. Six additional corrections for pages 282 through 288 appear on the first extant page of Joyce's first um, Finnegan's Wake notebook. 
Pages are missing from this notebook, and some of which presumably contain the corrections for pages 258 to 82. And so this notebook page includes uh, uh, corrections to contract freely freckled and to delete the comma after ready-faced. But because these, this particular page was never forwarded to Weaver, freely freckled remained in its two-word form up until Gobbler's edition, which amended it to one word precisely by citing this document. The comma after ruddy-faced fortunately had been removed earlier. It was eliminated in the 1936 Bodley Head edition. Now the first uh, emendation on this page is for page 282, I dare him and I double dare him. On page 282 of the first edition, seven lines from the bottom, the line is published, reads, I dare him says he and I double dare him. The specific instruction given in Joyce's emendation is not immediately clear. Um, Gobbler follows from Jack Dalton's suggestion to italicize the quoted material, so he renders the line as I dare him, underline, says he, and I double dare him, underline. And this is an eminently plausible interpretation, since this line reprises a quotation from earlier in the episode, where Joyce, which Joyce had um, clearly italicized. And so the revision thus renders this line consistently across its two appearances in the novel. This is a case of Joyce being a bad editor. He's not consistently applying the same kind of house style to a passage. He sees that and corrects that problem here. Unfortunately, that correction got itself, itself lost. The um, next um, inundation um, that I haven't covered yet involves Michelangelo. Joyce added the name Michelangelo Hayes with no medial comma onto the list of supposed Irish heroes and heroines of antiquity. He added that name on a proof page along with a panoply of others. But a comma um, intervened and bifurcated the name on the first edition, um, but not in any antecedent proof page. This is a mistake that the, the typesetter made. Presumably the comma got added since there's so many damn commas in that list separating names from it. So this makes Michelangelo Hayes one person into two Michelangelo. Um, and the error remained in all editions up through Gobblers. Next is one involving uh, St. Jude's, which is a question of inserting a comma there. It's an, it's, this corrects an error in formatting that Joyce had made consistently since he first wrote that address down, and that error remained in print in all editions through Gobblers. And finally, um, you have uh, Say I becomes Says I. Um, Joyce clearly wrote, says I, and, and the, that phrase recurs uh, frequently in that episode, but in that one instance, the, the typist puts in, say I, and the reading, and that's, that's how um, the reading that went on to the first edition. Um, and while Joyce's correction on this page got missed for the listing of errata, the 1936 Bobby Head edition corrected it as well. Um, so uh, these six emendations provide a good illustration of the range of Joyce's late editorial decisions and corrections for Ulysses. Joyce is predominantly correcting typos, that is, errors that crept into the text during the course of its production. Of the six corrections on this page, two are Joyce correcting his own mistakes, Freely Freckled and St. Jude's. Two are corrections of typesetters' mistakes, um, and um, one, is a correction, uh, uh, one is a correction of a typist's mistake, and the last one, or actually the first one on the list, is for creating consistency across um, 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 the, the rendition of a passage. In terms of their eventual incorporation into um, subsequent editions, two were corrected in 1936 for the Bodley Head, 
and the remaining four languished unchanged until Gobbler. And then the seventh entry on this page is of a, a, a categorically different kind of order, a conceptual step back. Polyphemus is UL's, Ulysses' shadow. Um, and then the remainder of this notes are different. Um, again, they're take, all taken from various sections in the 20th of October, 1922, issue of the Irish Times, and combines words from various sections of the paper, some of which are used in the wake. Um, and so in this page, with this qualitative shift from corrections to um, note-taking, Joyce begins to leave the task of correcting Ulysses behind, at least for a time, as he then starts work on his next book. It's as if he's saying Ulysses cannot be corrected, hence Finnegan's Wake. But even past the inception of Finnegan's Wake, Joyce does not completely abandon the task of correcting and even revising Ulysses. The first, that first foray into post-publication emendation was, unsurprisingly, insufficient to deal with all those errors. But such is the nature of composition that correction yields error. Beyond the corrections listed on this notebook page, several of the emendations that Joyce recorded on the errata list to Weaver, some of the corrections that Joyce wanted made never got made themselves. Um, and then some got, ha, um, had to wait until later errata listings, and some of them um, never got made at all. Um, an example of a missed emendation, Joyce's first listing uh, of errata restores a single sentence paragraph from Telemachus that got missed on the first um, um, Gallico page. He crammed his mouth with fry and munched and drunk. That sentence was omitted a second time that while it's on Joyce's holograph list of um, uh, corrections um, to make for the second printing, it just didn't get transferred onto the typescript. There's something about that line that Ulysses did not want to have that line in it. Um, um, and indeed, it, um, it, it, um, it was finally reinstated into the text for the 1926 printing. What, um, what's interesting then about this is that for Joyce to notice that missing line, this shows that there's at least evidence of at least some collation, even if only haphazard, of the published text against the typescript of the serializations. So Joyce is correcting his text on the basis of extant documents. He is acting like an editor. Joyce's oversight continues through the 1930s, although he largely delegated editorial work to his publisher's minions. In 1937, he noted that the 1936 Bodley Head Limited Edition is, quote, full of misprints. And although it does contain about 100 corrections, chiefly of punctuation, and so he advises Bodley Head to use the Odyssey Press, the earlier Odyssey Press edition, to correct these misprints as they're getting, uh, as they're getting the 1937 printing um, ready. That is, in full and proper Greg Bauer's terminology, the 1936 Bodley Head is the copy text and governs in terms of accidentals, but will admit revision of substantives based on collation with an earlier printing. So Joyce is being a good editor at least in theory. Um, now, in preparing the first errata list, um, going back to 1922, Joyce wound up vetoing some, many of Rodker and Weaver's suggested emendations, since, as he explained, these are not misprints, but beauties of my style, hitherto undreamt of. Post-publication, Joyce's attitude to accidental infelicities is somewhat more tolerant 
that his earlier complaint about Fincher's errors was almost exactly a year before. Indeed, in November 1921, Joyce explicitly whinged about all those Fincher's errors. Whereas in October 22, he writes Weaver that he would prefer the term misprints over errata uh, if it did not involve a slight deprecation of the printer. Um, that, that he doesn't like the word error, but he doesn't, the word misprint, that's a little bit insulting to, to, to that idea. Um, Joyce is now seemingly more tolerant about letting at least some errors remain as portals of discovery hitherto undreamt of. This is not to say that Joyce is willing to let um, these misprints or errata all remain unaltered in the text, since he is still committed to some degree of editorial mediation or remediation. Rather, he is at least somewhat averse to calling them mistakes, since that implies a value judgment on the quality of the textual change. And likewise, the term misprint carries a value judgment against the printer. And by this time, Joyce clearly recognized Dalantiev's efforts and travails, although in private, Joyce was a little bit less diplomatic. Along with a copy of a, lady, uh, of a later printing, Joyce enclosed the following note to Nora. The edition you have is full of printer's errors. Please read it in this. I cut the pages. There's a list of mistakes at the end. So here, in, in private, he's calling the spade a spade. But um, likewise, Goblin, when he assembled the critical and synoptic edition, mostly avoids the term error and instead prefers a more neutral terminology of variation. Gobbler writes, um, the variant, far from being an extraneous irritant, becomes an integral textual element of pivotal signification in the total work. Where revisional variants manifest themselves, they make evident crisis points of articulation through which the work passed in the writing. That is, this is where the, uh, one can make a sort of profitable comparison of the perhaps unfortunate terminology of genetic criticism. This is like the perpetuation of genetic information, that mistakes in the transmission of genetic information is vital for the propagation of life. In this way, the left-hand pages of Gobbler's Critical and Synoptic Edition, which records all these textual variations, in um, um, some degree of full detail, can become a prism through which to discern how the text of Ulysses evolves as a product of Joyce's uneven writing and uneven editing. Likewise, the text that Gobbler then edits on the basis of that is also uneven, but this unevenness is a perhaps necessary reflection of Joyce's compositional um, unevenness. As Ronan Crowley and Matthew Creasy write, Gobbler errors error, presenting its textual wanderings and inciting the reader to follow the journeys of Ulysses. Editing concerns errors, concerns and converts without definitively rectifying. And this would be why editing and writing are intertwined. If editing is an aspect of writing, then writing is an aspect of editing. Like the gross-booted draven of Aeolus, there is a chiastic structure, although asymmetric, between writing and editing. And in this, editing is a not quite ending task, since emendations always yield further emendations. Because of those cursed typos, the process of writing is never quite arrested, and editing has always already begun. Thank you.